Some say he's a technical whiz. Some say he was born in Cornwall. While some say that he's on a journey. It's the journey, and here's your host, David Hackett. Today's guest on the journey began his 35-year NASA career at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Mayland as a presidential management intern. In 1984, he transferred to NASA's Ames Research Center in Northern California, serving in various positions of increasing responsibility in public affairs, government relations, and education. I'm not going to say any more because it's his journey, not mine. But today we welcome NASA Senior Executive, retired Donald Gregory James, to the journey. Thank you so much, David. It's just it's an honor to be on your show. I no, appreciate it. No worries. We got there in the end. Technical difficulties aside, we got there. <laughs> so everyone has a journey. Your journey goes way beyond anyone's journey has ever gone before who I've interviewed. Tell us your earliest memories of your journey. They really start when I was probably five or six years old in the house we lived in, in California. It turns out that we were very near our local airport. And so we could see the airplanes flying in and out, you know, from our backyard and occasionally my father would take me and my brother to the airport and we would watch the airplanes. Of course, back in those days, this was a long time ago, there wasn't a lot of security concerns. And so we could walk to the airplanes, go inside if we want to and talk to the pilots. <laughs> then they'd shoo us off because they had to have a flight. Boy, those were different days, weren't they? Mm. So... From that point on, you know, I had an interest in planes, anything that flew. My father was in the Foreign Service, so we took a trip overseas to Africa and we flew on big planes. I remember the first time I saw the new 747 jumbo plane taking a trip. This was in the 70s, I guess. And Mm. I remember saying to my dad, there's no way that thing that big can fly. <laughs> so I was always fascinated by how that worked. And so that uh, led me and my brother to say, well, we want to be pilots. We want to fly planes. And uh, fast forward later in college, I tried to figure out, well, what am I going to study in order to be a pilot? So I picked aerospace engineering. And it was an interesting field, but I found that I didn't particularly care for it that much. I still wanted to be a pilot. And then those dreams kind of ended when really the only way to learn how to fly that I saw that I could afford was in the military. And I learned something interesting about myself that my personality and the military personality didn't mix very well. (laughs) I have nothing against it. I think it's a a really honorable profession. Mm. But for me personally, it it wasn't for me. Whereas my brother, he didn't have a problem with it. So fast forward, my brother is now a commercial airline pilot flying the Dreamliners. And I ended up getting a job at NASA, which initially I didn't think I wanted to work at NASA, but I had this opportunity when I had this internship. 
And my father encouraged me to do the interview, to check it out. And so, and that's kind of a lesson, you know, if you have an opportunity to do an interview, even if you don't know if you want a particular job, take the interview anyway, because you never know. Mm. And so I did. And uh, for some reason, they liked me and they hired me. And I was only going to do this for about three or four years and get some work experience and then go off and do something else based on what I ended up studying in school and in graduate school. But something happened in 1986 that changed my life. And anybody listening to this who was around at the time thinking about space might know that that was the year that our, our space shuttle Challenger exploded on launch. And somehow I got involved in some of the activities after the tragedy, particularly in education. Um, I was asked to work with the backup teacher that died on the space shuttle, who was then going to go around the country to be with teachers and students who were still in shock over this event. And that experience led me to say, if I can work for an agency that has this kind of influence and inspiration to teachers and students, then this is where I want to make my career. And so I decided in 1986 that I no longer was going to just use this early experience with NASA to move on to something else. I was going to uh, hang my hat. And 35 years later, that's exactly what I did. And so I rose up in the organization uh, to the highest levels you can get in the U.S. federal government system as associate administrator for education. Um, uh, and so it was a, a fantastic journey of discovery, self-discovery, as well as learning how I could play a role in making a difference to um, young people and early career professionals. Mm. And that's what ultimately led me to write the book uh, about manners, because I've, I figured out that people always wanted my advice about how to make it and how to be successful. And I realized that, you know, being smart isn't good enough. I realized that it's not your wealth that's going to make you happy and make you successful. Uh, that to me, what's important is how we carry ourselves, how we engage people in the fullest spectrum of what I call manners. Mm -hmm. And so after a lot of students would ask me this question, I decided I better write a book on this <laughs> and expand on my thoughts. So that's my journey. And it's been a fantastic journey. I've traveled the world. I've seen lots of places, met lots of people. And I'm more convinced than ever that our ability to have deep authenticity and awareness and empathy with our fellow person uh, is really the key to our own sense of salvation and happiness, if you will. And that's what I have discovered for myself. So I offer this for someone to take a look at and see if it fits them too. And so, so that's my journey in yeah. a nutshell. In a nutshell. And that is, like you said, is a real powerful journey because you said about you was growing up and now I was growing up obviously in the 80 I was born in 83 so the, uh -huh. 7, so the 747 was per se the plane everyone wanted to travel on now I yes. saw, I saw very little of them but I knew of planes because where I lived yeah. in England 
it was very very basic and you only saw the spectral and the you know chemtrail off the plane so you hardly knew what it was there was no such thing yeah. as an airport back then and the only yeah. time I, and the only time i saw planes was if i was seeing my great nan who lived in the flight path of Heathrow airport yeah, yeah. <laughs> and exactly. and like you said that was the biggest plane and nowadays it's the a380 and i think it's like the same question you asked yourself back then how can that thing fly exactly it's it still fascinates me even though as someone who studied aerospace engineering i now understand i understand lift over drag and thrust and i, I understand those principles but these planes are heavy and they're huge. And it's like, how do they even get off the ground? But it's a marvel of engineering that, to me, I know a lot of younger people might think, gosh, with space vehicles and, of course, the Concorde, which was way ahead of that its time. That was a brilliant plane. You know, it's just I was so sad to see it go. I was looking forward to flying on it. I had an opportunity once but it cost so much money. And I thought, well, I'll wait and save up my money for later and later never happened. So I'm really hoping, hoping these new supersonic commercial planes that are under development, hurry up and get finished mm. so that I can finally have that chance to fly supersonically. But, I agree with um, you. So yeah. it goes into education director from 1999 to 2006. And you was the one who developed the first project for and I always follow space well and you know I I know it's nothing totally related but Carl Sagan has always been my inspiration for the cosmology yeah. of it all so space yeah. cosmology just always captured my imagination so it says you first did the first project plan for NASA's Orion spacecraft in 2006 at the Johnson Space Center and led NASA's bid to host the International Space University 2009 summer program. Now, Orion is, you know, that's a unique thing as well because everyone talks of Orion. Yes. So if people are aware that NASA is building the next generation super heavy launch vehicle, um, it's... Uh, compared to the Apollo rocket sometimes, it's a little bit bigger than the Apollo rockets. But borrowing on that architecture where you have a, a, a tall vehicle, unlike the space shuttle, it's not designed to come back and land. And at the very top is the space capsule where the astronauts sit. And back in the early 2000s when they were developing the concept for this, and there were some changes, I had an opportunity to um, go to Johnson and it was a little bit out of my field, but they said, well, we need a project plan for this vehicle and mm -hmm. we want you to take the lead in writing. And of course, I didn't do it on my own. Like anything we do at NASA, there's usually a large team of people. And I had several engineers and uh, techni technical people that were involved in this, but it was my responsibility to figure out how to write a plan around how we were going to construct and test and fly this vehicle, including doing all the risk assessments. And one of the things your your listeners might be intrigued at, this is a little a bit of inside information that um, is uh, that I'm sharing, is that I sat in one project meeting talking about the configuration of the of the capsule and how it was going to look. And there are very senior engineers who are involved in this, and I'm kind of on the sidelines, right? And there was a discussion that came from some of the younger astronauts who were also assigned to the project to help 
figure out the design. And they were concerned about how the seats were going to be placed in the capsule because they thought they would be too close to their fellow astronauts because they had to figure out where to put the toilet and all this other mm. kind of stuff. And I remember sitting in this meeting, listening to these people, and then they had some of the older Apollo astronauts who were kind of like the wise old guys who would <laughs> sit around and say, well, back in our day, this is, and they, and one guy leaned in and said, are you guys out of your mind? God, in our day, we practically slept on top of each other. This is not a luxury hotel. This is a space capsule, and we have a job to do, and we have to keep our weights down in order to make our mass margin in order to get into orbit. So quit your whining about being too close to somebody. It's like you guys are afraid of getting cooties or something. And I was like, oh, my God, if people actually knew what was being talked about, they would crack up. So, you know, it was a fascinating experience for me to see that when you're on the inside of a high-tech organization like NASA, that people are people, and they're human beings, and they have issues and concerns. And that's when I began to pay attention to this notion of manners, broadly speaking, not just the polite you know, not the kind of thing that you, you learn when you have to go meet the queen or the king, right? You know, that's etiquette and protocol mm. and civility. And I hope people learn that when it's appropriate. I'm talking about the broader range of behaviors and attitudes and things that people bring to their person that I saw that in an organization, even like NASA, that how important that is to the success of of. of of, of, of a project or even the success of someone's careers. Yeah. You would be amazed to know that there are people, even at NASA, an organization like NASA, who uh, lost their jobs or didn't get a promotion or did get a promotion. And it wasn't because of their technical capabilities. It was because something about their manner made them not worthy of being supported. Now, they don't say that publicly, but I but that's what how I characterized it. So that's why I started paying attention to this. And I tell students and early career professionals mm. that as you're developing your career, yes, it's important to have ambition. And yes, it's important to have your competence, right? If you have competence with no ambition, you're just going to be an outstanding, uh, you know, pencil pusher, <laughs> right? If you have ambition without competence, you're going to have imposter syndrome that you're going to get found out one of these days that you don't know what you're doing. Mm. So you have to have both. But I think there's a third foundational leg, and that is your manner, how you engage people. And I've seen people's careers do well and not do well based on that. So that's that's why I, I talk about yeah. this so much. And, you know, you're talking about in that brief segment about you know the, the space design of how spaceships are made and yes you look at you know obviously the ones that you talk about landed vertically and then the ones you developed were basically the ones that landed in water and i think that's where the basis of spacecraft like spacex nowadays comes in, because that's a similar sort of designers of wiring where it does come in and it goes into water. Yes. And initially the plan was um, we were going to land Orion on land. That was the initial idea was to land the spacecraft on land. Much like if people watch 
uh, Blue Origin. The Blue Origin rockets, they don't go into orbit, but they go suborbital. When they come back, the, they land on land, and then right before they hit the ground, just like the Russian Soyuz rockets, there's retro rockets that soften the impact, and they have some cushions there. And that was what we were going to do with Orion. But it turned out that because there were too many opportunities for the spacecraft to come back and land in conditions that were not favorable on the land when they, we were going to land, that they had to develop a backup plan to land in the ocean. And then they realized, well, if we're going to develop all the technology and the capability and spend the money to land on water, we might as well just land on water from the get-go rather than trying to do both. Mm. So uh, so now that's why Orion is going to land in the water. Much like many of the SpaceX capsules land in water, the last, the last one, for example, did land in water. Mm. Um, at some point, you know, they might even bring capsules back on land too, uh, but I don't think that's any often right now. No, but I believe it is opportunity there because, but like you said, the development of our SpaceX shuttles are made. They made more for water companies. So. Yeah, yeah. And it's really based on, um, it's not that from an engineering standpoint, it's impossible to have them land, but there's a lot of trade-offs in the space business. And in order to develop a capability and, and reduce the risk to landing on land, and there's a lot of risk involved in that, um, you have to have uh, components and fuel and things to uh, enable that, and that's weight. And, and weight in the space business is bad because the heavier your spacecraft is, the more expensive it is to get off the ground and get into orbit. You have to make it bigger, so it costs a lot more money. Now, Elon Musk decided with his SpaceX vehicles that the first stage was going to land back on land or on the drone trips in the sea because he wants to reuse them. So the fewer of these you have to make, the cheaper it is to do it. And he's figured out a, a way how to perfect that that's that's pretty good. Mm. Uh, that's not NASA's way. NASA pretty much discards most everything until they bring the capsule back. So there's a lot of engineering trade-offs that happen in that, and it's always a fascinating study to see why they make decisions yeah. the way. And, yeah. you know, we talk about the scenario, and I've been watching, obviously, SpaceX when they come in, in the water. It's just, I think, as well, because of, you know, you've got to be mindful of our spaceships when they come in. They said about you can't just, just jump in and get the astronauts out. You've got to wait X amount of time before you can go in. So I assume it's the same scenario if it was to land on land nowadays it would be the same principle you have to wait for that cooling off period to make sure everything's okay before going in yeah i'm not an expert in that i just watched some of the videos from some of the soyuz recoveries so the recovery people uh i know try to keep a safe distance from the air spacecraft simply so it doesn't fall on them right yeah and so uh, but they're watching it. And then as soon as it does land, they they rush up to it. And I think in the Blue Origin example, they, they get to the capsule pretty quickly. Um, I, I don't, you know, they, by the time it hits the ground, a lot of the heat that has been accumulated has dissipated in the at upper atmosphere. Um, I don't think that any reason for waiting has anything more to do than just keeping a safe distance initially so that because sometimes, particularly in the ocean, you're not exactly sure ex precisely where it's going to land because you have winds and things like that. But they have a pretty good idea. They also have radar that's tracking them. And, and they like got that. the and they got the plane monitoring and they got 
you know, yes. it's, it's clever how it works, and that's what always yeah. fascinates me. It's just like, it is fascinating. It's totally fascinating how it works. It really is. And then you, and then they got the fast boats now as well, which will be pretty yeah. much within a five mile radius of that, so they can come in really quick. And even then, those boats are made by NASA, you know, NASA or whoever it is, and they're just unique because they go in so fast. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Exactly right. So um, you entered the senior executive service in 2014, and um, they, the administrator at the time in July, Charles Bolden, selected you as Associate Administrator for Education. So you led an agency-wide effort to leverage NASA's unique capability to advance high-quality STEM education through the yeah. NASA Space Grant Program, the experimental program, to stimulate competitive research, the minority yes. university research and education program, and the STEM education and accountability program. Yes. So that was quite a big Yeah. So how was that for you in your journey? Well, um, first of all, when in, in the federal government system of the United States, to get into the senior executive service is a, a whole different category of employee than it is in the regular general service, right? We call them general service, civil service, right? I was mm. a federal civil servant. And, and the difference really has to do with your breadth of responsibility and the complexity of the job. And you're, you're what's called an, an OIC, official in charge, which means that in many respects, the buck does stop with you in all ways. And so for me personally, it felt really different. You know, I had I I had responsible positions before I, I moved up the ranks in the general service category, GS, like from nine to 15 over the years. But in the senior executive service, you have to go through certain training. You have to have special certifications. I had to go back to school because the idea was to develop a cohort of leaders that pretty much could walk into any organization in any federal agency and have the skill set to lead that organization even if they were not subject matter experts in that mm. area. Now, in my case, I, through my job history, I knew a lot about education. I did teach a little school, but I'm not a certified teacher. And I, I knew enough to be dangerous. But really what I was is that I was responsible for leading people who manage big programs for NASA. That's what my job was. I had to bring in the money. I had to fight for budgets with our congressional representatives. I had to um, defend the budget. I had to, you know, try to shore up weaknesses in the organization. We had a national, you know, we have NASA facilities all over the country. We have a presence in every state in the United States in terms of money on our grants program. So it was my job to kind of get everybody singing to the same sheet of music, if you will, about what we were doing in NASA education and why. And quite simply, what we were doing is we were trying to inspire the next generation of explorers and discoverers, scientists and all that. I'll give you a specific example. 
There is a woman right now who might be one of the first women to land on the moon for NASA. Her name is Jessica Watkins, who's a young lady. Jessica Watkins was one of our interns at NASA Ames when I was there, and we selected her to be an intern when she was at Stanford University. And now she's an astronaut and she has flown already uh, in space and she's been on the space station. And she is one of the few uh, women that, that we think, I think they're gonna make an announcement in three weeks time about who's gonna be on the next uh, moon uh, trip for Artemis program. So that's what our job was, was to get people like Jessica excited about space, but this was all across the country. And not just to be astronauts, it's to be communicators, it's to be scientists, it's to be biologists, it's to be medical professionals, it's to be computer scientists. There's so many fields. As you know, STEM is an acronym that represents science, technology, engineering, and math. And you can imagine underneath each of those pillars are multiple, multiple disciplines. And so we were interested in promoting all of those. So my job was to, to advocate for that and to try to get the entire agency's uh, capability around supporting that so that we had capable people not only to work for NASA, but to work for other agencies in the United States that needed yeah. qualified people. Yeah, so, you know, you talk about astronauts abroad because that is what people automatically assume. They say astronaut. It's not just an astronaut. Underneath that, you know, ma you know, Helmet is like you said a scientist or someone who's in the medical field. They Thousands look, of people. Yeah, and it's a thing that yeah. people misconceive, just thinking they just astronaut, but they don't see the true meaning of who that astronaut is. And before Wikipedia or anything came along like that, you just thought, oh, it's astronaut David going into space. You don't think yeah. automatically David astronaut David has got medical background or he's this in the background. They just exactly. assume. Exactly. You got it exactly right. And that is that is part of the struggle with messaging to students about career options and, and what really goes into it. If you look at the backgrounds of many astronauts, they have multiple skill sets and capabilities. You, many of them speak multiple languages. Uh, but be, beyond the astronaut, you know, um, as my brother said, you know, and he's just a pilot, not an astronaut, but he has a he does a video in a cockpit of his Dreamliner, and he said, and there's a bunch of people in the cockpit getting the plane ready. And he said, the interesting thing is, I cannot do my job without those people, but those people can do their job without me. And that's true for astronauts, right? An astronaut is never going to get into space if it turns out that um, the people that support the ground systems, the, the fuel systems, I mean, there's you could just imagine the thousands of things that have to go right just to get a rocket up into space. And mm. that's just part of, that's just one part of NASA. That Remember, NASA is an acronym, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And the S is for space, but also is for space science. So you talked about James Webb Telescope and Hubble and, and Spitzer, and then all the Mars rovers uh, collecting science on Mars, and then the aeronautics, which is about aircraft and how to make aircraft more fuel efficient. Right now, we're working on electric power aircraft to reduce the carbon footprint. So the agency has got its tentacles in a lot of the future of technology and space, and 
our goal, my goal as the head of education was to make sure that we had a cohort of capable people interested in all of those fields for the future. Yeah. So we touch upon in the conversation about your book, your deal for the author winning book, Manners Will Take You Rare Brains and Money Won't. It's true. Money doesn't buy your brain. It's just about common sense there, I believe. And then it lessons is. and then lessons from 35 years at NASA and Mama's wisdom with the timeless wisdom from his mother to help students and early career professionals navigate their future. Now, this isn't a cheap book, How to Get Into Space Quick. This is just using your way of being successful is being polite, your way of being this way, your way of being that. And I like that because it's an inspiration. Because it does take manners to be that person. Yes, it does. The first thing for people to to understand, my hypothesis on this is that how I define manners is very broad. It's how we speak. It's how we listen. It's our body language. It's our attitude. It's our sense of integrity. There's a lot of dimensions to this. And so the message is, based on what I've learned and what I've studied, and I've read lots of books on this, and I've taken lots of training, and I have lots of job experience, is that these little things matter. I've seen people blow their interviews over dumb little things that they did, you know, like taking a phone call or texting in an interview. That's not good manners because it tells the interviewer that whatever is on your phone at that moment was more important than that particular interview. Mm -hmm. I've seen people who were, you know, out of Harvard University, straight A's, really brilliant on paper, just do not have the kind of presence that and the sense of awareness and a sense of, of, of empathy because they're so smart, they know more than everybody else does. And that doesn't work in the space business because that creates blind spots. And when you have blind spots, people can lose their lives. So my message is that I appreciate all the technical things that you have learned and mastered. And I welcome that and I think that's great. And I appreciate your ambition that you wanna move up and do great stuff, but you have to pay attention to your manner of being. And sometimes it's real subtle. Sometimes it's real specific. And, and this is what I write about. Um, and so, you know, manners will take you where brains and money won't is what my mother said to me. And um, I and I gave a talk and I write about this where a young man asked me, well, if I can go back in time to when I was an intern and I wasn't an intern, but knowing what I know now, what would I advise myself? And I said, mm -hmm. I would remind Donald of what his mother said about the importance of manners. Because I think if I had worked on that earlier, I probably would have even done better than I did. Right. Mm -hmm. So you still have to know how to fly the plane. Mm -hmm. You have to know how to fly the spaceship. I'm not saying go into an interview with NASA. And when they ask you, well, why should we hire you? I'm not saying... Tell them, well, I've got great manners, so you should hire me. They're going to laugh you out of the interview room. What I am saying is that 
it's often the tiebreaker. My brother is in a highly regulated industry in the airline industry, right? He's a captain of a 787. It's highly regulated. There's not a lot of room for showboating and doing whatever you feel like. A lot of discretion is given to the captain for emergencies and things like that. But a lot of it is kind of by the book. And what he will tell you is that he has seen this happen in interviews for a pilot at his company where manners was the tiebreaker you got to imagine this if you come to an interview at his company i'm not going to name the company if you come to an interview at his company you already have to know how to fly the plane otherwise they wouldn't even let you in the door right mm. you have to know how to be a pilot you know and sometimes they're already with the airline they're trying to interview to be a captain or something and he's seen He's seen how two different people who are equally qualified to fly an aircraft, how one of them gets the job and the other one didn't get the job because of something that they did with their manners. And he actually has a couple of examples that are astonishing to me that happens, right? And I'm like, wow, people actually did that? <laughs> he goes, yes. So I, I, I am imploring People, even if you're in your mid-career or if you're wondering why are you being looked over or why aren't you getting opportunities, take a look at your manners, right? Take a look and see if that's part of the problem. And I, in the book, I talk about ways to, to do this. So I'm on a mission to not only in, uh, help younger people and early career professionals up their manners game, but I'm on a mission to help people in general around the world really remember that as fellow human beings, uh, we need to be kind to each other. We need to be civil to each other. We need to be present for each other in this high-paced environment where we're in, where we have multiple electronic advices and there's a lot of demands on our time. Sometimes we just need to pay attention closely. And in many ways, is that's what manners is about is paying close attention yeah. and caring and so that's what my that's that's why i wrote the book is because i i really want in my last quarter of my life uh this is the difference that i want to try to make and i assume it's on most bookstores and apps like amazon barnes and noble audible i'm just trying to think where else it could be most bookstores i would say yeah yeah okay yeah. so finally what message would you want to say to people now the main point you would want people to understand and take forward from this interview yes um a couple of things as i said being smart isn't good enough when it comes to your career and, and advancing your career being smart is great but it's not good enough you need to pay attention to your manners. In life in general, your manners really will make a difference in terms of the quality of the relationships you have with people. We know from research that people who live longest are not alone. They're not disconnected from their fellow human being. They are connected in some ways. Research has demonstrated this. So our manner of being, which is about human connection, is vitally important. I also tell students, you're always interviewing. 
you may not be interviewing for a specific job at a specific time and place, but you may be sitting on a train next to somebody that you don't know. And because you're angry about something or had a bad morning or your tea was cold or something like that, your dog ate your homework, you're rather caustic or you're rather cold to the person who's trying to chat you up and just say hello. And you may not know, but the person that's you're doing that to happens to be the head of a company who could have offered you an internship or offered you to connect you to somebody that can help you along the way mm. or to do something for you because you didn't give that person a chance to connect in an authentic way. So you're always interviewing. You're always interviewing. And so I I would say I I really hope that people think about their manner on a day-to-day -day basis and just be curious. Be curious about other people. Give more than you take, right? I never, I never take a break from my day, David. I give myself a break. Giving is what I also give to myself, right? I don't pay attention like it's a money exchange, like I'm going to pay attention. I give attention, Right. The act of giving is an act of love. It's an act of concern. It's an act of empathy to the people that you're giving to somebody. So give attention. Don't pay attention. Right. And um, and so this is what this is my message. And um, uh, if people want to learn more, um, I have a website and I it has my bio and it has uh, information about the book manners. Uh, it's simply my full name, Donald Gregory James dot com. Donald gregoryjames.com and when you see it you'll see the orange book manners will take you where brains and money won't um you can also find it of course at any bookstore or amazon of course and it's in all forms electronic audio and paperback and so um and and i'd like to ask if someone gets the book and reads it, and if it resonates with you, please reach out to me and tell me what you think and tell me what it, how it made a difference so that I can incorporate that in future talks. Because I do talk all the time about this. Mm. Donald, James, thank you for sharing your journey with us today. My pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you. That was The Journey, hosted by Wise Words Imaging, hosted by David Hackett. Be sure to like, subscribe and listen to another journey coming soon.